Good morning. I was doing a little research this week on unjust verdicts and trials. And I found the story of a man named James Bain. He was arrested for a series of crimes um, in Florida in 1974, convicted of those crimes, and sent to prison. He protested his innocence until sometime later, an organization called the Innocence Project began to study his case, and they, they took up his case and did DNA work and, and, uh, and some other evidence that had been overlooked and secured his release. James Bain is the longest-serving innocent man in American history who's been now released on DNA evidence. Arrested and convicted in 1974, he was released in 2009 after 35 years in prison. We occasionally are frustrated because it feels sometimes like our legal system is... Um, sort of rigged in favor of defendants. But it, and in, in fact it is, because our system has always believed that it is a greater injustice for an innocent man to go to prison than it is for a guilty man to go free. That is not unlike the Jewish legal system of 2,000 years ago. Which is why John chapter 18 is so fascinating just from a historical standpoint because what we have here in John 18, I told you last week, you have, we have two plot lines that, that John in a literary masterpiece has woven together. One plot line is the story of Peter and culminating in his um, three-time denial of Jesus. But the other plot line of John 18 is the, this series of nighttime trials or kangaroo courts almost that Jesus was taken through following his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's fascinating, if it wasn't so disturbing on a spiritual level, what's fascinating on just a historical level is, is the way that those events unfolded as a direct contradiction to the system that had been set up to guarantee that something like this would never happen, that an injustice could be protected against by the system. I'm going to talk to you as we, as we see Jesus arrested and, and taken uh, first to the house of, uh, of Annas and then to Caiaphas and eventually to stand before Pontius Pilate. I want to talk about how uh, really human injustice is on display in this series of events because both the Jewish interrogations and, and the trial before Pilate are, are just filled with what, to use modern legal term, what we would call reversible error. They were conducted in a manner that was illegal from start to finish. And when you begin to see 
how many illegalities are built into this story. They just pile on top of each other until you say, wasn't there one single person on the planet who could stop and say, wait, this is not right. And yet the answer to that is no, there wasn't. And in that sense, it's not just the Jewish leadership, it's not just the representatives of Caesar. It's everybody's fault. It's the fault of our sin. It's the fault of our systems. It was the fault of a time where God... This is the most classic example of all things. We're taught in Scripture that God makes all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He doesn't say everything is good, but He makes good come from it. And there is not another instance in human or creation history more significant than the cross of Jesus Christ where the greatest injustice that ever took place was used by God to redeem the sins of the world. Open your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to jump through this chapter the same way that we did last week. And, and uh, because I'm, I'm trying to unravel the way that John has interwoven these, these plot lines, Peter was our focus last week, but I want you to, to follow Jesus as he uh, goes through this night of trials after his arrest and before the cross. Um, one thing that, that we have here is, let, let me just set the stage. John, we have four gospels, you know that. John doesn't tell us everything that we, that we can know about that night. Every gospel writer, I talked about this last week, they have a particular audience, and so they're selecting what to include in their story uh, to emphasize what they're trying to teach to the particular audience that they have. Because of that, uh, we, John doesn't spend much time on the Jewish part of what happens that night. I mean, he's going to show us what happens in the house of Annas. And I'll tell you about Annas and Caiaphas in just a minute. He's going to tell us about the preliminaries that took place in the house of Annas. He's going to completely skip over uh, Jesus' time before Caiaphas, who was actually the high priest. But John's gospel gives us more information than any of the other gospels about the Roman side of that night and when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the representative of Caesar. So, understanding that, um, let, let's, let's work through this. You remember in John chapter 18, we started with the first 11 verses, and that's with uh, Jesus confronting the, the soldiers that have marched out to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. He, he positions himself physically between the soldiers and his disciples who are sort of in the shadows behind him. And, and Jesus is in control of the situation until Peter uh, impulsively steps up with a sword and tries to, to, to slice the head open of, of, of one of the uh, servants of the high priest, and he cuts off his ear. Jesus turns to, to Peter in no uncertain terms and says, this is not the way this is going to go. This is not how this is going to unfold. Well, the other part of what happened there, you'll remember Jesus was so much in command of the situation 
that when they came, he said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, what? I am. The power of that moment, he was so clearly the dominant presence in that interaction that they were startled backwards and begin to, to, to tumble back on, onto each other until some of them actually fell because of this encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, Peter jumps up, he does his thing, Jesus puts him in his place, That's, there's no room here for swordplay, that's not what we're going to do. And in that moment, the, the soldiers are going to kind of recompose themselves, and they're going to seize the moment. Clearly, Jesus is not going to uh, give them any real resistance, and so they, they, they march in, uh, they, they arrest him, and probably, I, I think it's probably just normal procedure, but they actually bind him, what we would say handcuff him, and, and march him back to Jerusalem. They're going to take him to the house of Annas. Let me give you this background. The two characters on the Jewish side of this story are Annas and Caiaphas. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest was supposed to serve for a lifetime. It was a lifetime appointment to be the high priest of Israel. By the time we get to the Roman period, the Romans often uh, would interject themselves into local politics and, and other issues uh, if they felt like somebody was not um, on board or, or if they were a danger to, to peace. The Romans didn't care what you believed. They didn't care about your religion. They didn't care about your economy. They didn't care about anything. The Romans cared about two things. They cared that you paid them the taxes that were due, and they cared that you kept the peace and didn't cause them any problems. That's all Rome cared about. Well, there was a high priest who became high priest in the year 6 A.D., he was supposed to be high priest for a lifetime, but he got sideways with a Roman ruler, and he was deposed from his role of high priest in the year 15. So almost a decade he served in that capacity. But he was a masterful politician, and he knew how to play the game. This man's name was Annas. Annas is still often referred to in the New Testament as the high priest because from a Jewish perspective, once a high priest, always a high priest. I mean, he didn't hold the office, but, but, that, but the people saw him that way. The reason I say he was such a masterful politician is because working within the system that Rome allowed them to have, Annas was responsible for a series of high priests that, that really played out through uh, the middle part of the first century. Annas was high priest for almost a decade. Following his, uh, following his removal from office, uh, Annas installed five of his own sons as high priest in consecutive terms. He installed one grandson and one son-in-law. Now, his son-in-law was Joseph Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the high priest at this moment when the trial of Jesus comes up. Now, what's going to happen is, among all the illegalities that I'm going to point out about these trials, they arrest Jesus and take him immediately from his arrest to the house of Annas. Annas is not the high priest, but he's clearly sort of the power behind the throne. They take him to Annas for an interview. 
I'll talk about the illegal parts of that. But Annas's job, apparently, as a master politician, uh, a worker within the system, his job was to come up with a charge that they could use against Jesus that would secure his execution by the Romans. So they go to Annas first, and, and he interviews Jesus, and we're going to look at that. And then frustrated that he doesn't get anything from Jesus, he sends him to Caiaphas, the actual serving high priest. Now, John's not going to tell us about the interview with Caiaphas. We have to draw that from other gospels. But then we find John saying, next, then Caiaphas will send him on to Pilate. And I'll explain why that happened and how it unfolded. But let's go to John chapter 18. Beginning in verse 12, just after Jesus has put Peter in his place for using a sword, John chapter 18, verse 12 says, so the Roman cohort, remember that word implies a thousand Roman soldiers. Now they probably weren't all there, not a thousand of them, but there was a large enough contingent that the, the commander of the cohort was also there. The Roman cohort, the commander, and the officers of the Jews, remember officers of the Jews, those are the temple, that's the temple police force. Really, police is, is probably not a strong enough word. They were trained military, meant to defend and administer, administer the space of the temple. The Roman cohort, the commander, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and brought him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was in their best interest for one man to die in behalf of the people. Now, here's what's going on. They take Jesus, he's arrested, he's bound, they march him to the house of Annas. Annas was deposed by the Romans in AD 15, but he's still the real power in temple politics. He's going to try and secure a charge. Now, as the story unfolds, the charge, they don't have a charge that will hold up in a Roman court against Jesus, and they know that. So as we watch this story unfold, they're actually going to shift charges in, in, in mid-stride. You see, the original charge that they come up with is insurrection. That is, they want Rome to think that Jesus has claimed to be king, and as a king, he's a threat to the peace, to the law and order imposed by Rome, and Rome will often execute someone who is a threat to law and order. So Jesus claims to be king. He's an insurrectionist. Rome needs to do away with him. All right, we'll talk about that. They realize that that's not going to hold water, and so they shift in mid-trial, and they say, well, he claimed to be the son of God. See, now what they did was they went from a political charge, and they shifted it to a theological charge. He is now guilty. He was guilty of insurrection. Now they're charging him with blasphemy. All right, it really doesn't matter because the outcome was already predetermined in their minds. This man had to die. They'd decided that long before. But let's watch this drama unfold because it's really fascinating. John says they took him to Annas first. Now we'll read about that conversation. Uh, but they, but he, then he mentions Caiaphas as the high priest. And what John wants to remind us was in John chapter 11, verse 49, Caiaphas was talking to the Sanhedrin, the leadership within, within, within Judea. And, and he says, listen, this guy's got to go. 
And if there was any objection, hey, that's not what we do. We don't kill people. His justification was, listen, this man is a threat to the system that we've put in place here. It's better for one man to die on behalf of the people than for our system to be compromised. Well, what John is pointing out is two things. This Caiaphas is a person who long before this particular night has already decided Jesus has to die. The verdict has been settled before any trial has ever taken place. But the second thing that John wants us to see is that Caiaphas makes the most unwitting prophecy because he says it's expedient that this man dies because it's better that just one person dies than that we mess up this whole system and, and get sideways with Rome and lots of people die. But what he didn't understand, as, as trained theologically as they all claim to be, they didn't understand that the entire Old Testament was full of hints and clues and prophecies and statements that God was going to get was going to bring human history to this exact moment when, in fact, God would become flesh, live among us, and one man, one perfect man, one sinless man would, in fact, die in the place of all of us. Well, the divine justice was unwittingly declared because here in the mouth of this godless high priest... He says words that actually fulfilled the prophecy of exactly what God was doing in this moment leading up to the cross. Now here's where we get into the, the Jewish part of this. The Jewish injustice here is shamelessly demonstrated, beginning in verse 19. This is, uh, we've had a, a little interlude where he talks about, where John talks about Peter, but now we're back to the story. Jesus finds himself in the house of Annas. Not the high priest, but the real power. And he refers to him as the high priest, probably because the Jews saw him as high priest, whether he actually held the position or not. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple area where all the Jews congregate, and I said nothing in secret. Why are you asking me? Ask those who have heard what I spoke to them. Look, these people know what I said. But when he said this, one of the officers who was standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now let's talk about this. I want to talk about the blatant illegalities here. The Jewish legal system, the details of, of how it was to unfold are outlined in, in the documents that in Judaism are called the Mishnah. And I could do this all day long, but I just picked a few of the, of the issues that were, that were performed illegal here. The Mishnah says that the system of justice is designed to make sure that an innocent man is never convicted, especially if the charge is blasphemy, because blasphemy is a capital crime, meaning that once somebody is executed, there's no way to recover from a mistaken verdict. So the system is actually weighed to make the burden of proof on the prosecution 
so that there's no mistake. Let me give you, let me, let me give you an example. In, in the Mishnah, uh, a, a charge of blasphemy or any capital offense required a hearing before the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of, uh, of 71 uh, Jewish leaders, 70 elders, which was the traditional number drawn from the tribes of Israel, at, plus the high priest, 71. A capital trial that involved the possibility of execution had to be done in front of the entire Sanhedrin so that everyone could have a say. There couldn't be even the appearance of anything sort of being rammed through in secret. By the same token, the trial had to happen in the daytime. It couldn't be done at night. It couldn't be done in secret. It had to be done in daytime. And if there was a, a, a guilty verdict issued, the verdict couldn't be announced until the following day. And then when the prisoner was being marched out to execution, a herald was to be sent out ahead of the prisoner, announcing the prisoner's name, the charge against him, and the verdict of guilty. Now, the reason all this was to happen is because the trial was to be during the day so that any information, any witness that could uh, that could speak to the innocence of the person charged, they would find it easy to present themselves. The verdict was not announced until a second day to give more time for new information or new witnesses to emerge. And then even when the, when the, when the prisoner was being sent out to be executed, he, there was a herald announcing in advance so that even up to the very last moment before the execution, there was still always the opportunity for somebody to step up and say, wait, I have evidence that needs to be considered. Needless to say, none of that was done in this trial. Not only was it not done in the daytime, the verdict wasn't postponed today. There was no announcement that allowed for others to be brought in. But even that's not all the illegalities that go here. It says in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Well, first of all, Jesus is going is, is to ignore the question about his disciples the same Jesus that stepped in front of the, 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 the soldiers as, as almost a, a barrier to his disciples at the moment of his arrest is still uh, standing in front of his disciples figuratively so that they're not caught up in all of this. He keeps the focus on himself. He's still being the good shepherd. But Annas asked him questions. Now, here's the thing. The Jewish legal system did not allow direct interrogation of a man charged with blasphemy because that interrogation is asking him to incriminate himself. See, what was supposed to happen is you were supposed to bring witnesses. Those witnesses were brought into the Sanhedrin and they were interviewed in private. That is, nobody else was allowed to be there, just the witness. And they were asked questions, and they gave their testimony, and then they would be ushered out, and then another witness would be brought in, and the same procedure would take place until all the witnesses had been exhausted. The reason for that is because a capital crime where you're going to execute somebody, it requires by Jewish law that, that there be two or three witnesses in agreement. So they would interview witnesses to make sure that they had two or three whose accounts of the charges against a man were, were the same report. 
so that there was confidence of what really happened. This whole thing starts with Jesus bound. A man was not supposed to be bound during his trial. That's another little tidbit that they didn't care about. Hey, they bring Jesus bound into the house of Annas, and he begins to question Jesus. And this is why, this is what Jesus is doing. He's actually calling out the improprieties of this moment when he says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple area where all the Jews congregate. And I said nothing in secret. Why are you asking me? Ask those who have heard what I spoke to them. Look, these people know what I said. Here's what Jesus is saying. You You're not supposed to ask me. That's not the way this works. Everything that I've done has been in public. I've taught in the temple. I've taught in the synagogues. I've been across the land. My teaching is essentially public property. Lots of people have heard me. There's no shortage of witnesses. Why don't you ask the witnesses? That's the proper method for a blasphemy trial. Bring in witnesses, interview them, make sure their testimony matches, and then you've got a case. But you didn't do any of that. You didn't bring in witnesses. You haven't asked anybody. You're you're questioning me. Jesus is not running scared here. He is standing unbowed, unintimidated by this whole process, and he challenges Annas and says, you can't do it this way. This is not right. I love this. I love the way Jesus handles this. Um, Execution for blasphemy, this is just another little tidbit I'll throw out there. The Old Testament is absolutely clear. Execution within Jewish circles for blasphemy was always 100% of the time to be done by stoning. And Jewish law further states that a man is never, ever to be executed on a tree, which is the method of crucifixion. Okay. So what's happening here? We've got these people, and they're going to they're going to try and have the facade of legality. We know from other Gospels that they convened the Sanhedrin the minute the sun came up, dawn the next morning. Why would they do that? Because they knew the law required that this trial happen in the daytime. The trial had already been decided. Jesus had been answering questions and going back and forth from one place to another the entire night but they convene the Sanhedrin first sunlight. Why? Because they want to have the facade of legality. Listen, let me say this. Let me see how I can say this without making it too painfully relevant to the generation in which we live. But when politicians are corrupt... Part of the cover of political corruption is they become fastidious. They become excessively obsessed with the rules and the regulations, with the processes and the procedures. What's happening here is they're going to go through all of these, they're going to jump through all these hoops. They're going to convene the Sanhedrin for literally five minutes 
just so that they can say they fulfilled the requirements of the law. Why? Because they're trying to make this look like it's all legal, it's all been done properly. They're not bothered at all by the fact that they are so completely morally defiled that they are ramrodding an innocent man all the way to a Roman cross. But isn't that the way corruption always works? Corruption People who are corrupt are always self-deceived about the level of corruption that's in their own soul. But they cover up for it with the details of process and procedure. That's what's happening here. And so they're careful about, about the appearances, all the while shamelessly railroading a man to the cross. Well, Jesus challenges the high priest and verse 22, but when he said this, one of the officers, one of the temple policemen who was standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? When I was a kid, we had a word. Maybe you, maybe you know this word. Maybe it's before your time. The word was toady. Does anybody know what a toady is? A toady was that, a toady was that wimpy kid who hung out with the bully. And he was like the bully's gopher. You know, I mean, just whatever the bully said, he would just, he would, but the, but the toady always, because he's always in the proximity of the bully, the toady always tries to act tough. He always tries to be a bully, but because he, he knows the bully is, is behind him. That's what's happening here. This nameless soldier who has sold his soul to this corrupt high priest Jesus challenges the process, and this guy punches him. Well, I should mention that one of the illegalities is an accused man was never to be physically assaulted or abused in any way before his conviction was complete. Here this guy punches him and says, don't answer the high priest that way. And look at Jesus again, unintimidated. Look at what he says. In verse 24, uh, verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, if I've done something wrong, there should be witnesses here. There's a way to do this. And if I haven't done anything wrong, then why did you hit me? Jesus is in control of this situation. You say, well, he's a prisoner. He's standing there bound. Yes, but he's the only one who's saying there is a right way and a wrong way to do things, and every part of this is wrong. This is a sheep being led to slaughter, and they are all proud that they finally solved their Jesus problem. Well... <sighs> Annas realizes he's not going to get anything out of Jesus. Jesus knows the system too well. Verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now you can find his time before Caiaphas in the other gospels. John doesn't, um, doesn't take us there. He's, that's not the part that he's concerned about. But we know more about the Roman trial from the gospel of John than anyone else. Beginning in verse 28, it says, Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, that was the headquarters where Pilate would have been living. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. 
Okay, a couple of inter interesting things. It says it was early. Roman, Roman politicians had uh, a typical schedule. They started their work day at dawn because, frankly, they wanted to just get it out of the way. Because being a Roman politician had a lot of perks to it, a, a lot of advantages. And so somebody like Pilate would have typically started his day at dawn, and he would have tried to have been completely finished with the day's work by, by, by 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. At which time he then had all of the day and all of the evening and all of the night to live however he wanted to live. A Roman politician worked typically about four to five hours a day max. Start early, get it out of the way. So if you wanted to catch him, you had to get there early. Well, we know from the other gospels that they convened the Sanhedrin, couldn't have been more than a few minutes. They, they sign off on these charges. Then they march Jesus over uh, to Pilate and they present him to, to the Roman uh, governor to, to secure his conviction. Now, that's where we move from the shamelessness of the Jewish injustice to the embarrassment of the Roman injustice. Pilate had to already know about Jesus, okay? We can take this for granted. Think about it. Just a few days before, Jesus had marched into Jerusalem. In fact, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds hailed him as king. Well, I promise you, reports of that event would have made their way to Pilate, who would have said, all right, check out this so-called Messiah King. I want everything that you, can, that you can bring me on him. Well, he's already examined this Jesus, and he probably has laughed about it, all right? Here's a king, right? He's a king. He rode into town on a donkey. He's surrounded by peasants. Um, you know, they're, they're singing church songs, and, and he's just... He's just not overly impressed. In fact, I know that, that, that that's his attitude because what's, what's going to happen when they meet is, is Pilate is going to reveal his thoughts. It says, um, oh, but before we get to Jesus, the Jews come to Pilate's place, but they won't go in because it's the, the, the Passover is that night. And they can't afford to go into the house of a Gentile on the outside chance that they might touch something in that house that would make them ceremonially unclean and they wouldn't have time to recover from it and they'd have to miss the Passover. And they couldn't miss the Passover because these guys, they were the head honchos. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't bother them to murder an innocent man, but they won't go into the house of a Gentile because, you know, rules. Well, Pilate's used to it. He doesn't like them. We know he doesn't like them because in other places, we know historically that Pilate used to, to make decisions specifically to irritate the Jewish leadership. I mean, he would just do things because he knew it was going to hack them off. So there's already a, a tense relationship. They don't like each other, which is what makes this so fascinating because in this moment, uh, they find agreement, uh, somewhat agreement related to Jesus. Verse 29, because they wouldn't go in, therefore Pilate came out to them and said, what accusation are you bringing against this man? And they answered and said to him, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Now, this is fascinating because um, in the Greek, when it says that Pilate asked what accusation you're bringing, it implies more than, than the English translation tells you. 
He's not just asking for information. It's a formal statement that tells the Jews that he is asking for a charge because he is opening his own Roman investigation of the matter. Now, they didn't want that. They didn't want Rome involved at all. They just wanted him to rubber stamp their decision. They needed his approval so that they could do what they wanted to do. But when he says, what accusation are you bringing? They, they spar with him a little bit and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. If he wasn't a criminal, and the word actually means doer of evil, evildoer, if he wasn't a wicked man, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have wasted your time. See, they still don't bring a charge. They still don't lay out a case because they don't want Pilate involved. They want him to just sign off. We brought you this guy. You can tell just by the fact that we brought him that he's guilty of something. So don't trouble yourself. Just sign the papers. Verse 31, so Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. See, they're like, we don't really need your involvement. You don't need a Roman trial. We brought you a prisoner. Just, just, just sign the paperwork. And, and Pilate, he goes, fine. You don't need me. See ya. Go handle it. Go do it according to your law. And here's the nub of it. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Ah, now we have it. You see, in the ancient world, Rome conquered smaller, less significant nations. And they left them to basically administer their own business. Rome didn't care about their economy. Rome didn't care about their religion. Rome didn't care what they believed. Rome only cared that you paid your taxes and you kept the peace. But Rome had reserved for itself one thing. You can have your legal system. You can have your court system. You can practice all of your own rules and regulations with one exception. Execution, the decision to execute criminals, that is reserved for Rome alone. Conquered nations did not have the right to issue capital punishment. Here's the thing. Here's why they need Pilate. Here's why they need the Romans. Because they've already decided that Jesus has to die. And they need somebody official to sign off and allow it to happen. Well, verse 32 is just a, a summary John puts this in, this happened so that the word of Jesus, which he said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus, remember all the way back in John chapter 12, he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Jesus often spoke about his coming death, and he spoke in terms that were descriptive of a crucifixion, which would have been weird to the disciples because Jews were typically not crucified because that was a Roman punishment, not a Jewish punishment. But what's happening is John is showing us how the Jewish agenda and Rome's involvement are now becoming intertwined under the hand of a sovereign God so that this will unfold exactly as it had been prophesied. Verse 33, 
Therefore, Pilate entered the praetorium again. Remember, he's outside with the Jews who won't come into his house. He goes back inside, and he summoned Jesus and said to him, you're the king of the Jews? Now, there's no punctuation in Greek, so it's hard to know for sure if that's a question. He seems, it's translated here that he looks at Jesus and says, you're the king of the Jews? Um, the, while there's no punctuation in Greek, there is emphasis that shows up in the endings that, that words are given. So what we do, do know is not whether this was a question or a statement, but we do know that the emphasis was on the word you. Remember, he's probably had reports of Jesus. He's probably already been aware of his march, uh, his ride on the donkey into, into Jerusalem. He's probably heard about Jesus teaching in the temple. He's, he knows the, the Jewish leadership is not happy with this guy. He understands some of what's going on. And he walks in. Jesus is brought to him. This is probably the first time Pilate has seen Jesus in person. And he says to him, you are the king of the Jews? I mean... There's nothing about Jesus that looks kingly. He doesn't have an army. He's not dressed like royalty. He doesn't have anything about him that would suggest that this is a king. And so he says, you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own or did others tell you about me? Well, that's a legitimate question. Jesus says, okay, let's, let's get to the heart of your question. You're asking if I'm the king. Well, is that a political king you're talking about? Is this your question? Because you see, that's all, all Pilate was concerned about. He wasn't interested in any Jewish kings unless there was a king who could be a military threat to Rome, who could disturb law and order. That kind of king would get Pilate's attention. Jesus said, are you asking for yourself or did somebody else tell you about it? Because if you got this from the Jews, then you're not asking if I'm a political king, you're asking if I'm a spiritual king. Am I the Messiah? See, Jesus was saying, clarify your question, because if you want to know if I'm a political king, the answer is no. If you want to know if I'm a spiritual king, so be it. Pilate deflects. Verse 35, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Now, he knows these these Jewish leaders well enough to know that they don't do anything that's not to their advantage. They're corrupt. He knows they're corrupt. He knows they're trying to play him. They're trying to get him to do something that they want, but he's trying to get the backstory. He says, what have you done? What's the rest of the story that those Jews out on the porch are not telling me? And Jesus answered, and, and when, before I read this verse, verse 36, think about the moment. We have the Son of God in private conversation with the representative of the most powerful man on the planet, Caesar himself. Pilate is a direct appointee of Caesar. And they're having this interesting conversation about kingdoms. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He says, listen, I'm not a political king. The kind of king that you're worried about, I'm no threat to you. There's not anything I've done that, that should disturb you. If I was that kind of king, I would have the very things you're looking for. 
I would have an army. They'd be fighting for me. They wouldn't have let me be arrested. I'm not that kind of a king. You don't need to be worried about me. My kingdom is not of this realm. Verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. <laughs> Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. It's almost, like, it's almost like he says, so you are a king. It's almost like Jesus goes, well, okay, that's your word, not mine. But if that's the word you want to use, yes, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be a king. But I'm, this, I'm a different kind of king than you think. The rest of that, verse 37, for this purpose... I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, this is a fascinating verse because what happens here is Jesus says something that is not redundant. He says, I was born, and I came into this world. This is a hidden, uh, not a hidden, but a, a, a kind of an obscure confirmation from the lips of Jesus himself that he is the God-man. I was born, I was, I, I'm a man, but I have come from another place. I existed before I was born. I have come, and the reason I came, the kind of king I am, is I'm here to announce truth. And those who recognize truth are my people. They come to me. They're drawn to me. They know me. And Pilate says in verse 38, what is truth? Now again, you have to figure out what he's asking. You could read that question as, what is truth? A kind of a philosophical question, pondering the deep issues of life. I don't think that's really what Pilate was doing here. Rather, you have to read it almost dismissively. Jesus just said, I am a king, and I came from another place to announce truth. And people who recognize truth, people who hear truth and they know that it's true, they come to me. They're my people. And Pilate, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Son of God, the God who created Pilate and breathed existence into him. He looks at Jesus and goes, what's truth? Interview over. Here's the point. In this room, there's a real good chance that in this room, there are people who don't have a bad opinion of Jesus. I mean, you don't feel like you're against Jesus. I mean, you're in church after all. And yet, you have the opportunity, both by being here and, and just because the Spirit of God is available, you have the opportunity to have an encounter with the living God who breathed life into you. And yet, like Pilate, you just want to finish church, you just want the sermon to be over, want to check the box, 
and get on to all the other important stuff that I have to do this week. You see, it's a dangerous thing to take an opportunity to meet with Jesus and to treat that with casual disrespect. Because see, for Pilate, this opportunity wasn't going to come again. This story could have ended so very differently if Pilate had said, I'm troubled because the deepest issues, the deepest questions, the greatest mysteries of the human condition. What is my life about? What happens when I die? Am I, in fact, separated from a God who made me? Those kinds of questions. He had the opportunity to speak to the very truth giver who could give him answers. But he was too busy. What's truth? Pilate is no different than people who think one of these days, I'm going to give serious consideration to these deep questions. One of these days, I'm going to think about what it means to live in this world, to experience this life, to, to face the reality of my own mortality and death. But I'm here to suggest that Jesus is right here in this room. And he's available for you to confront the very questions that you don't have answers to. Why would you blow that off? Why would you walk away? I'll get to it. What's truth? It'll wait. What did Pilate have to do that day? I don't know. Probably a little administrative work, some papers to sign. Probably planned an early nap after lunch. But I promise you there was nothing else on his agenda that day more eternally significant than a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus Christ. And he missed it. If you don't know Jesus Christ, shouldn't you, at the very least, take some time out of your busy life and say, I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to look in the Word of God. I'm going to try and find answers to these big questions. I can't imagine that you won't find them in Jesus, but if you don't find them there, if you say he's got nothing for me, then be on your way. But see, the enemy doesn't want you. He, doesn't, he knows if you look into Jesus seriously enough, you won't just be on your way because you will find answers there. So what the enemy does is he doesn't take the challenge and say, come and see Jesus, come and study him, come and discover who he is. He doesn't want to risk that. He wants to keep you busy. He wants to keep you occupied. He wants you to dismiss it because you just don't have time for it. 
if that's you, I'm pleading with you. Carve out the time to have a conversation about what matters in your life and see if Jesus isn't the answer. The Jews, they were shameless. They were corrupt to the core. Pilate was corrupt in a different way, but his problem toward Jesus was not corruption so much as it was intellectual and spiritual laziness. Will you find the time to explore Jesus? Say, so, well, Pastor, I'm already a, a believer. Okay. Did you read your Bible every day this week? Oh, that again. I'm not here trying to beat you up about the habits of the faith, but I'm telling you, you see, when you stop to read your Bible and pray, you also have the privilege of a face-to-face, one-on-one conversation with the maker of the universe. What do you have in your schedule more important than that? I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. I, I don't have time to read my Bible. Yes, you do. Turn off the television. Turn off your computer. Lay down the newspaper. Put aside the magazine. Pick up the Word of God. Because you will find things there that you never knew. And they will change your life. Father, we... We recognize that they were often not what we should be. And unfortunately, we're often more like Pilate than we are like, like the disciples that we were designed to be. Lord, I pray that in this place, you'd find the hearts of people who right now are making a new and fresh commitment to walk in your truth, to engage you in conversation, to read your word, to be prepared, to answer the weighty questions of the human condition. Because we have found not a book of answers, we found the book that tells us about the man who is the answer. Father, forgive us when we're casual with truth. Forgive us when we're lazy with our discipline. Thank you for John and the record that he's given us of these events. And thank you that Jesus put on display how to live with confidence in the middle of a world marked by corruption and intellectual nonsense. Help us to be a people worthy of that man, Jesus. Father, draw us to yourself. Renew our commitment to be like you as followers. And Lord, in this place, draw us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.